our great and awesome God and Father. How thankful, Lord, we are to once again come before your throne of grace. And now, Lord God, to come to pray that you would anoint and bless us with your Holy Spirit and that you would today speak to us through your word. Not only to encourage our hearts, Lord, to live our lives as unto you, but to challenge us, Lord, in living our lives diligently for the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see the day of Christ approaching. And today, Lord God, we realize that uh, being that there is so much tension and chaos and confusion and wickedness and evil in this world that, uh, Lord, we have to deal with practically every day. We ask, Father, that you would give us the wherewithal to deal with these things rightly and properly. We thank you that you've given us your word, that today we want to come and, and, and to look into and pray that it will be written upon our hearts. We come, Lord God, to you with the opportunity to lay, lay down our hearts as we, as we sang to you, Lord God, to purify our hearts in our minds, in our consciences. Cleanse us from our sin. Cleanse us, Lord God, from those things and those impurities and those iniquities and transgressions that, that have stained us in this past week. And, and now, Lord God, we, we, we want to be free from those things, to hear you clearer and to hear you better. Lord, we also pray that... Uh, our understanding will be enlightened to the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, of bringing before you the, the burdens and the needs of our, of our people, especially today pray for Pat's mother, Lord, who has taken a fall this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would heal her and, and certainly uh, that uh, the injuries may not be uh, serious at all, but, Lord, that she will be able to recover quickly from what has taken place. We pray, Father, for all of our law enforcement officers, especially those, Lord, in the Border Patrol today that are uh, dealing with these issues that have come up with, with the death of, a, of an agent. As, as far as I know, I'm not as clear of, of what has happened, but... I, I realize, Lord God, you know the situations and those uh, agents who are there today, even from, from this church. We just ask you, Lord God, that you would, would bless them and protect them and continue, Lord God, to use them and, uh, and that, Lord God, to keep, Lord, the laws of, of this land. But now we come to your word. May it open up. To our hearts, Lord God, the truths that you would have us to know in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Genesis chapter 7. I've entitled this study, A Long Night's Journey into Light. Really a play on words. Uh, 
of a play written by Eugene O'Neill called A Long Day's Journey Into Night. I was thinking about that uh, the other day when I was considering how how sad that, that particular story was of a family of uh, great dysfunction, you know, with, uh, drug addictions and alcoholism and never really coming to a, any amount of hope at all. But in studying the Word of God, especially here in Genesis chapter 7, we see a night of darkness, a, a night of sin that has encompassed all of the earth that God had created for good. And now Noah and his family alone are going to be rescued from the judgment that's to come. So as they get into the ark, they're going to be taking that long night's journey into light. A new creation, a new earth, as it were. But in verse 1 it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens the male and his female. And of beasts that are not clean by two the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens the male and the female to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Have you ever wondered as to how long you might be able to be obedient to the Lord? How long do you think that you can be obedient to the Lord? I know that we all get up every morning as believers in Jesus Christ. We we get up wanting to be pleasing to God. We want to be obedient to the Lord. That's usually our desire. Whether we get up on the wrong side of bed or the right side of bed. It should always be our desire to be pleasing unto God and to be obedient to the Lord. And I know that our desire as believers is always to be obedient, but from time to time, we we have to admit that we haven't been obedient 100% of the time. We're human, we have faults, we have failures, we falter from time to time. But can you imagine for even a moment that there was a person who remained faithful to the Lord in obedience for nearly 120 years? 
That's a long time. I think there are some people that really struggle in being obedient for 120 seconds. But he was obedient 120 years. And that person, of course, was Noah. And the last verse of chapter 6 summarizes a, a whole century plus of, of absolute obedience to God's word by Noah. Genesis 6.22 says, Thus did Noah, according to all, notice that, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Everything that God commanded, Noah did. Even under the most difficult and disappointing and apparently hopeless conditions, Noah continued to remain obedient to his God. As we see in verse 5 of chapter 7, Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. As we see in verse 9, it says, There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. Verse 16, They went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Noah remained obedient throughout all of that time that God had called him to be a preacher of righteousness, to go out and to let the people know judgment was coming. Obedient to God when he said, go build this ark and build it in, in these dimensions. We all should know the reason why Noah was so faithful to do all that the Lord commanded him. And it surely wasn't just to be the central character in a story, to be told to children in Sunday school classes filled with cartoon figures of animals, one on top of each other in a comical way. It's much more serious than that. You see, sin had infected the human race through, through Adam's disobedience. Through Adam's sin. And now that sin had grown to epidemic proportions. It was so bad that we were, that we were told in, in Genesis 6 verses 5 through 8 that God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Think about that. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Stop there and think for just a moment. That if God saw the wickedness of man being great in the time of Noah, do you not think that as he looks upon this world today, that he is thinking the very same thing? The wickedness of man is great on the earth today. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, man continues to think that somehow we, humanistically speaking, are going to be able to change the world, change everything that's going on, make it better. We can't even make it better in one country, much less all of the nations. We're in terrible sorts today, folks. And we remember what Jesus said as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. This is as much talking about today as it was talking about Noah's time. God goes on, it says here, uh, uh, well, Moses goes on as he, 
As it records this, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah, <clears throat> but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you know, that's for us today. That's for us to understand today. That Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when you do a deep study of this particular thought, in this particular passage, you begin to realize that what it says of Noah here, finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, is essentially the very same thing that happened to Abraham later on in the book of Genesis. When it says that God, because of the faith of Abraham accounted it unto righteousness for Abraham. With Abraham, it was from Abraham's perspective of his faith. But here, it is from God's perspective. God, or Noah, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And yet it's the same thing, as we'll see in just a moment. Because of willful disobedience against God's commandment in the garden by Adam and Eve, God was going to destroy the world by a flood. And yet, and yet we see His mercy and His grace extended to Noah and his family. Noah was to build an ark, you see, to save his family, to save the animals, to save the birds from destruction. And not only would it be through Noah and his family that the world would be repopulated, but it would be through the lineage of Noah that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, would come. That promise of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 of the seed of the woman was very much being fulfilled in the person of Noah. And in verse 1 it says, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And once again now we see the word righteous being mentioned here. Applied to Noah, which is the same word that is applied to Abraham. Because of faith. Because he trusted God. Noah believed God. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In all of our previous uh, studies, as we arrived at chapter 7 a few months ago, I suppose... All of those studies have been foundational to the creationist worldview that an ark the size of one described in the scriptures could certainly be built by Noah and his family. And it it could contain every kind of animal with the ability to to carry supplies as well to feed and to maintain them throughout their journey uh, over the waters. And they've also made clear the fact that dinosaurs existed at the the same time as man, at the same time as man, and, and were included in the animals that came on the ark. We've, we've talked about all of that. We've, we've made all of those particular uh, investigations and, and research. But it is upon that foundation that we want now to bring Noah and his family into the ark. Because you see, we believe that every word from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to the very end of the book of Revelation is God's word and it is true. So we're not telling you a fantasy here. We're not trying to give you some kind of a story to make you feel better. It doesn't make me feel better to know that as in the days of Noah, we're so will the coming of the Son of Man be, because we're living in that time now. 
So I think this is serious for us to understand. We got to put we need to put no into the ark. And I want you to notice a phrase, if you will, here in verse 1. It says that God tells Noah, Come thou. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. God is inviting them into the ark. It's an invitation. Which can only mean that the Lord would be with them in the ark because the Lord was in the ark already. We've already stated the very fact that the ark itself is... The ark itself is a type of Jesus Christ. The wood, the, the pitch that, uh, that, it was, that was covering from inside and out uh, the whole of, of the ark. The covering, the, the covering being, of course, the atonement, because that's the same word for atonement. To protect through the coming flood. And God is inviting them into the ark. This is, by the, by the way, the first time that the word come is used in the scriptures as an invitation. It's used a few times before, but not as an invitation. Now we see it. Come, God says. Come thou and thy family into the ark. And it isn't the last time we see it as an invitation. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18... After Isaiah talks about the the very fact that the the people of God, the the children of Israel, the children of Judah, they're they're sick and the the sickness is is not something that is is, uh, uh, physical, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual sickness. But in the midst of that, we hear hear an invitation. Verse 18 of, of chapter 1 of Isaiah. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Jesus extends an invitation to us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come. It's an invitation. (coughs) Excuse me. The very last chapter of the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. What an invitation that is. There's an invitation at the beginning of the book. There's an invitation at the end of the book, the, the, the whole of the Word of God. There's an invitation in the middle of the book to say, Listen, you need to come. Because I have provided for you what you need for eternal life. I don't know what people are being invited to in in churches today. Sometimes we're inviting people, you know, to things that uh, may be very impressive to the eyes and to the ears, to the senses. I don't care about that personally. I care that you come to Christ. That you come to Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the one who died for you and rose again from the dead for you. But you see, that invitation tells us something. It tells us that the Lord was already in the ark and and salvation was simply the shutting in of all the saved with him. 
But that's not to say that, you know, that the, the invitation hadn't been for really everybody else. Because what it meant for Noah to be in the ark in his day is what it means for us to be in Christ today. I want to say that again. What it meant for Noah to be in the ark in his day is what it means for us to be in Christ today. In Christ. Now that's a very prominent phrase in the New Testament. In Christ or in Him. Paul uses it a lot of times. But we need to be in Christ. Because between the saved and the storm was the judgment-proof, pitch-covered lumber of the ark. Between the believer and God's wrath is Jesus Christ. Because He bore the whole brunt of the storm for all those who now find their safety in Him. There's a beautiful verse of Scripture in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. It's a beautiful Scripture. And I want to use it because I, I want to remind you of the importance of being in Christ. But John writes, and he says, And we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. By the way, this verse is a great verse for the deity of Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is, it says, We are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ. We are to be in Christ. As Noah was in the ark. Because that's where our safety is. That's where our salvation is. That's where our deliverance is. That's where everything we need is. It's in Jesus. It's not in a church or in a denomination. It's in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Noah and his family had to take one step of faith. And in so doing, they made a total commitment of themselves to the salvation that had been secured for them at such an immense cost. You see, I don't, I don't believe that a lot of people are taking seriously the fact that this world is going to be judged again. And as we'll hear about later, not judged any longer with a flood, but to be judged with fire. We're not taking that seriously. We in the church need to take that seriously because if we say we believe in the Word of God, it's in the Word of God, we have to believe that it's so. It will be so. But the fact of the matter is God called us to go out and to let people know, listen, this is going to happen. You need to come to Jesus because your safety is found only in Him. Only in Jesus. That's why we have driven home the point that if the Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth in six twenty-four days, as we see it in Scripture, that God did what He did in, in, in a matter of thousands of years, and not so much in a matter of billions of years, it's all because of this message. Listen, Jesus said. Jesus said. He believed in Noah. He believed in the Word of God. He believed in the Genesis creation. Then they need to believe, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Because if you can't believe one, you can't believe the other. But if you can believe the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, you can believe that Jesus is still the Savior of the world. He is salvation. He alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one else is. No man comes to the Father except through me. So when we take that step of faith to come to Christ, we are making a total commitment, not a half-hearted commitment, a total commitment of ourselves to that salvation. Then we find another commandment given, and we need to move on here, verses 2 through 6 of Genesis 7. It says, Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep the seed alive upon the face of all the earth. God's creation was important to him. Even the animals were important to him. Verse 4 says, For you seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy off, from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old. And the flood of water was upon the earth. So he was now to take seven of each kind of clean beast and bird into the ark. You might ask the question, how did they get there? How did they get there? I'm sure the animals were spread pretty well out around whatever the land formations were. But there's an answer to that. And God answers the question for us in Genesis 6, verse 20. Where he is speaking and he says, Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every sort shall come to thee. The animals are going to come to Noah. Noah. The God who created the animals. By his power, by his grace, by his spirit. The Lord who created them. To that's pretty cool. I think that's me. I mean, no, it's just old. Come on. How long would it have taken him to get all these animals? God brought it to him. Now, let's get back to the numbers here because I mentioned seven. And, and there are a few views that commentators hold concerning the seven of the clean beasts and birds. There are those who believe that exactly seven of every clean animal was to be taken into the ark, while others believe that this was to be seven pairs of each kind. Now, those who believe the number was seven only believe that the seventh was likely a male animal to be used as the sacrifice at the end of the flood. We know that when the waters recede, we'll study later. Once everything settles and they come off of the ark, that Noah will sacrifice to the Lord. But those who believe in seven pairs, they actually hold for the very same reasons. It's just that it's either seven or it's fourteen. Now, I tend to believe, and I, and I don't think that you know, there's, you know, if you want to believe it's seven animals, that's fine. I, I, I tend to believe it's, it's seven pairs of animals, and the reason is because every time we see this mentioned here in this passage, it talks about two by two, and it talks 
about male and female. So have fun, just kind of leave that one out. I want to see that maybe a little clearer in just a moment. But again, the reasons for the numbers being more than just two by two of these clean animals and clean birds is for the very same reasons. They're anticipating the new rule that comes after the flood that men should from that time forth begin to eat meat. They're allowed to eat meat. Because the original command, of course, was that they could have all of the vegetation of the garden and of, of, of the but they were to eat apples the same thing just as we said a few weeks ago that you uh, was a vegetarian. So in that particular sense, after the flood every day, at least in that particular sense. So to have more clean animals to eat and you need more in the yard. So uh, you also need them for sacrifice. You see, if it was only two by two, and you took two kinds of sacrifice. You see, if it was only two by two, and you took two kinds, or let's say uh, two of, uh, of one kind, a male and a female, and at the end you're told to sacrifice, guess what? If you sacrifice one of them, what are you going to have? You're going to have an extinct uh, kind pretty quickly. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's wisdom in God saying, you know, you have the clean animal, you have more uh, for this And I, I look at the fact that the seven pairs make sense in, this, in the fact that it used to mention two by two entering into the ark as well as male and female. So that, that's just, uh, you can believe it's only seven, that's fine. But in either case, there would be no dilemma pertaining to room for them in the ark or on the ark. Because another reason for the number of animals that the Lord commanded Noah to take into the ark was very simply to keep them at their kind of life. And in all of this, the ark was now this miniature new creation. By the way, we know that they would fit anyway because of the fact that we, you know, not long ago we talked about the dimensions of the ark and, and realized that if, if everything was done in a certain in a certain way, you know, that the kinds were the ones that were taken on so much all the species, that there would certainly be enough room for the animals. Again, we use the example of the dogs. You know, you don't need the biggest dogs and then you don't need every kind of dog. You don't need the Dachshunds and the Doberman pictures and you don't need your Chihuahuas and Great Danes. You just need two dogs. Because in the DNA, as God created them, in the DNA, they would have all of the other kinds of dogs within the dog kind. So, with that in mind, that's wisdom on God's part, you know. So there would be room, whether there was seven or, or, or fourteen. Uh, with, that, with all that in mind. A miniature new creation is now put into the ark, passing through the judgment storm safe and sound to a new earth. Now, it was God's ultimate purpose in redeeming not only man, but also the animal creation. Now, that's simply seen in chapter 9, uh, because in chapter 9 we're given the Noahic covenant. And if you'll turn to chapter 9 of Genesis, you'll see this. That God's ultimate purpose was not just in redeeming man, but even his, his creation, all of his creation. Verse 8, God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him and said, I, I behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you 
Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. So this was the covenant God was making with people. He would never again destroy the whole world with flood, or with the waters of a flood. And of a worldwide flood, by the way. But even the Apostle Paul also speaks along these lines when he writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 25. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we realize that because of Adam's sin, all of creation has been, has, has been touched by the corruption of sin. Animals before the flood, you know, were not vicious with each other. The, the, the lion could lie down with, with, with the sheep or uh, you know, a, a more milder animal and they were friends. After the flood, we realized that the lion would lie down with the sheep and the sheep was just lunch. You see. Things changed. But nonetheless, the whole creation, as, as we see in verse 22, says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travails in pain together until now. We're, we're going through that ourselves. We're travailing because we are looking for the new heaven and the new earth to come. The redemption of everything that God had said was to be once again restored to good, as He did in the first creation. And not only they, but ourselves, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Some of us just groan every morning, getting out of bed. But we groan. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what does he get hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we with patience wait for it. I tell you this, that hope was the hope that Noah had inside the ark, waiting for all of these things to happen. And it's an interesting thing. That he had that kind of hope, because you see, what I find so significant about all of this is what is stated in verse 4 of our text. In verse 4 of Genesis 7, it says, for yet seven days. Notice, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain. I believe at the beginning of that seven days, there wasn't the kind of cloud in the sky that would have caused the kind of deluge that was going to come. Of course, the earth was going to open up as well. But every just everything just seemed, well, if God says it's going to happen, then it's going to happen. Now, first of all, let's consider this for yet seven days. Noah and all his family were in the ark one whole week before even the first raindrop fell. Probably before that menacing storm cloud came. And that's certainly, you know, that's certainly walking by faith and not by sight. Being in the ark, going into the ark one week before. Now, there's indication as we go through the book, uh, the, the, the chapter 7 of Genesis, 
that we find that uh, once again when the when the when the rain starts coming that Noah goes into the ark but you have to understand they just made you know when God invited them to come into the ark they came into the ark they made the ark their new home and they certainly had to go in and out of the ark with the animals they had to do other things so in that week they were in the ark that was their new home and certainly when the door was about to be closed by God from the inside they would have to come back in because they were no longer of the earth as it was. So they couldn't look at things from a human perspective at this point. The fact of the matter is even we today, we can't start looking at things from a human perspective anymore. We need to start looking at things from God's perspective. And what God has to say about where we are prophetically where we are at the end times because we that's where we are we are closer now to the coming of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before now that's obvious tomorrow we'll be even closer if there is to tomorrow guess what May 21st we'll be closer I, I mentioned that because I think there's some posters around the city or billboards that say May 21st you know end of the world type thing you know Jesus is coming on May 21st folks Jesus said you don't know the day or the hour but you better be ready so for the only the only good thing about that kind of stuff is it should make us ready anyway but I think there's a lot more to do than just find a date and say this is what's going to happen too many date setters have been around and they've come and gone the fact of the matter is today may be your last day on this earth might be my last day on this earth are you ready to go home are you ready to go home are you ready to be with Jesus So you got to be ready see it doesn't matter I may never see May 21st you might not see it so you got to be ready It's not about dates. It's about faithfulness. It's about obedience. Secondly, and most importantly, those seven days were significant because they imply a time for final warning, for final preparation. Was the Lord allowing one more week for sinners to repent? Was He allowing for Sinners to come and to say, listen, I, I want to get on that ark. If there had been a hymn written at the time of Noah, it would have said, there's room on the ark for you. Because later on, much later, a, a hymn was written that says, there's room on the cross for you. But that would only be the very character of God, wouldn't it? That he would give opportunity, that he would give time, that he would give the opportunity for people to come to the ark, to enter into the ark. There's plenty of room. You might need to sit next to an elephant, but there's room. Because of God's compassion. Because of his mercy. Because of his grace. Because he knows what's coming. Because he's bringing it about. The judgment of the world. Because of sin. I mean, there's something that is certainly characteristic of the mercy of the Lord found in the book of Ezekiel. 
chapter 18. This is a fascinating chapter of, of, the, of the book of Ezekiel. Because it reveals to us not only that God is a just God, that God is a righteous God, and God will judge, and He will bring about justice. But it also is a chapter that deals with His mercy, with His kindness, with His compassion. Verse 30 says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. You can stop there and think. You see, people say, God is a judgmental God. Well, no, he's a just God. Please understand this. God will not judge without having first warned. That's enough to know about his mercies, isn't it? That he at least warns you something's coming. If you get right, guess what? You'll be okay. If you turn from your sins, you'll be safe. That's God's mercy. So here he says to the house of Israel, Israel, therefore I will judge you, house of Israel, everyone according to his way, saith the Lord God. But then he says, repent, notice, repent, turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have given you opportunity upon opportunity to come to me, to be rescued by me, to be safe in me. But you refuse and you turn and you disobey and you rebel. Why should you die? Turn back to me. But verse 32, how precious this is. He says, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. He says, I don't have pleasure in those who die because in their sins. He says, listen, return to me and live. That's what he's saying. Return to me and live. Is that not compassion? Is that not mercy? Has he not given time to change? You know, there's another verse of Scripture that says that the Lord is not pleased with the death of, of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. When Osama bin Laden was, was killed, you know, we all said, well, that's just. There was some justice in that. But there were a lot of people rejoicing. And, well, I don't want to use the word rejoicing. I think rejoicing should be saved for what we do before God. But, you know, they were, they were celebrating. On TV, you know, and doing all kinds of weird, dumb things in front of a camera. I don't know what happens when you get in front of a camera. You go crazy. You know, crazy. But listen, God was not pleased with the death of a wicked man. We were all created by God. And God grieves. When people turn away from him and turn to other things and to other gods and to other ways. And the wickedness of that person is what grieves God. When the wicked die, it 
so dies the intention that God had for them to be in fellowship with him. Getting back to Noah, what a faithful person Noah was. What faithful compliance Noah demonstrated to God. Verse 5, it says, And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Stop there for just a moment and think. They went in because of the waters of the flood. They feared the Lord. And so they turned in obedience to his invitation. But they knew that judgment was coming. Some people today aren't fearing God in any way, shape, or form. Some people think we're crazy because we say Jesus can come at any moment. But he's coming because he said he would. They came in. I knew people 30-some years ago that came in to Christ because somebody told them, you know, there's going to be all this devastation on the earth, and, but Jesus is going to come and he's going to rapture his church and take us out, you know, of this, this, this whole thing, you know. And they started hearing about, you know, all the things that the prophecies of, of the end times were, were going to be fulfilled. And they were being fulfilled at the time. And then we turned our, our, our attention to, to Israel and to, and to the Middle East and all that was taking place over there. We said, well, you know, this, this, this is really happening. It's time to get right with God. Hey, a little fear doesn't hurt. They went into the ark because of the water's coming. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. You know, we seem to be finding a few verses that would have inspired certain hymn writers. God calls Noah, come. Or God calls to Noah, come. And Noah responds, just as I am. I come. It would have been a great inspiration to the hymn writers of that beautiful hymn, Just As I Am. By the way, you're going to get to sing it pretty soon. And in entering the ark, Noah does what we all, what we all are called uh, to do as believers. Trust and obey. For there is no other way. Trust and obey. That's also a hymn. What a testimony it must have been to the godless generation that saw the beasts of the earth filing up the ramp, leading into the ark, a, a seemingly ceaseless line embarking for, for a new world. You know what it must have been for them to see that happening? The ark was going to set sail soon, never to return. O- only those inside would be safe. And yet that unbelieving world remains stubborn and hardened in its, in its wickedness. 
You know, it's, it's a principle that we find throughout Scripture that, that God witnesses two ways to, uh, to a generation about, about to be handed over to judgment. He witnesses to them in two ways. First of all, by faithful preaching. Secondly, by fulfilled prophecy. In other words, by sermons and by signs. Now we're told that uh, by, by the Apostle Peter in, in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, For if God spared not the angels at sin, but, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and verse 5, which is the key verse here for us, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. Notice, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And for a hundred years, over a hundred years, he preached righteousness to all those that were on the earth. bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. The scriptures and history teach us that his witness was, for all intents and purposes, it was in vain. Because only Noah and his family went into the ark. No one else did. But there was also fulfilled prophecy too. There was fulfilled prophecy as a sign That this was all going to come to pass. That prophecy was in the person of Methuselah, the oldest man in the world that ever lived. Methuselah. 969 years worth of life. And his name was the prophecy. When he dies, it shall come. Speaking of the judgment. When he dies, it shall come. That's what Methuselah means. When he dies, it shall come. I'm sure that even the scoffers and the mockers were probably looking at uh, Methuselah every day. Is Methuselah still here? Is Methuselah still here? Does Methuselah have a cold? If not turn into pneumonia, we may lose him. But Methuselah died. And I would have to say he died right then and there. Because when he dies, the judgment comes. The death of Methuselah was a sign to that generation. And I'm sure that there were other signs as well. I mean, let's let's consider for a moment the animals marching into the ark. It had a strange and disturbing sight. For no one was truly leading them into the ark. You know, animals are much more obedient than we are to God. There's a scripture in the book of Proverbs that says that. In effect, you know what it says? It says, you know, the animal knows its, you know, the ox knows its owner, and, or the donkey knows its owner, and the ox its master, you know, but men are pretty much stupid. I'm just telling you what it says. That's kind of the wording it says in Hebrew, you know. The ox and the donkey, you know, they're smarter than we are. Well, I should say that man who is without God. The animals blow into the... I mean, you know, that was, that was miraculous in a sense. But you see, today, the humanists, the atheists, the evolutionists, we're naturalists. But they're also rationalists. They can try to rationalize everything away. And so I'm sure the rationalists of Noah's time had an explanation for everything. Whatever the case... The signs were ignored. 
And it brings us back to the very prophecy of Jesus in Matthew chapter uh, 24, verses 37 through 39. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. By the way, all all that is saying to us really simply is that Things happen, you know, the the daily things, the mundane things, as well as the very special things. You know, every day everybody eats, everybody, you know, has to drink uh, and whatnot. But, you know, in other days there are special days, giving uh, or marrying and giving in marriage and all of that. What it's describing is just life as it's going on. And he says, whereas in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now we're at the time that we're looking at in Genesis 7. And, and, and it says, and they knew not until the flood came. Uh, they, they had just ignored everything and all the signs and all the preaching and all, and all of the indicators that were given by Noah and by God. They knew not, it says. They were ignorant until the flood came and took them all away. Judgment came. But you see, by that time, the door of the ark was closed. It had stayed open a week. But at the end of the week, when the waters came, from inside, that door was closed. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Is there going to be a day... When the summer is past, the harvest is ended, and people will not be saved. Well, I just quoted from a scripture. There will be a day when the door will close. Today's the day. Now is the time of salvation. Now. Not tomorrow. Not mañana. Today, the world was once destroyed by a worldwide cataclysmic flood. We'll talk a little bit about this more as far as, far as the fact that there was truly a worldwide flood. But it will one day soon be destroyed again, but this time by fire. And Peter tells us that. Second Peter chapter 3, let's turn there. Try to make this very quickly because of time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5-7 through seven says, For this they willingly are ignorant of. Notice, Peter really nails the hearts of the people of Noah's time. They were willfully or willingly ignorant. So, for this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed, water perished, but that the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So where there was one judgment of water, again, when the world was created, it was created actually as much of it was water. Of water came, you know, uh, creation itself. It was life that came out of the water. Water surrounded the land, you know, that was formed. But because man disobeyed God, then it would be water that would judge man. But as we look at the days to come, the catastrophic flood and the coming fire, looking back and looking forward, they, they draw one, one of, of two responses. One response comes 
from the unbeliever or the scoffer. The catastrophic flood and the coming fire draw one of two responses. First of all, scoffers deliberately forget the flood and they discount the fire. And they don't just deliberately forget the flood, they, they deliberately want to just erase the flood out of their memory. There are evolutionists today that don't believe there was a worldwide flood. But there's evidence of worldwide flood all over the world. As well as in every culture and every continent, there are stories of the worldwide flood. <clears throat> so scoffers deliberately forget the flood. They discount the fire. Oh, yeah, that's not going to happen. <clears throat> well, if, it's, if fire is going to come, there's still, you know, a few millions of years or, you know, thousands of years or whatever left for that to happen. But Peter nails it here in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 6, when he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water <clears throat> perished. That's one response. But there's another response. The response is that of the saints, of believers. Saints give diligence to their faith as they look back on the flood and forward to the fire. You see, we have faith to believe that we can look back and know that there really was a worldwide cataclysmic flood. And so we can then look forward and know that if the Lord says there's coming a fire that's going to destroy the heavens and the earth, then we know that's going to happen. We need to put diligence to our faith in believing everything that God says. Peter touches on this in verses 13 and 14. He says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Be diligent. Diligence is always connected to study, the study of the Word of God. Be diligent to know the Word of God. Be diligent to know it and to understand it. Be diligent to know it, understand it, and believe it. And trust that every word that God gives us is true. So our diligence in faith looks back and believes that the flood happened and believes what Jesus said when he said, as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Judgment is going to come. But it's all for redemption. The redemption of creation. Noah was God's saint in the midst of scoffers prior to the flood. We are God's saints in the midst of scoffers prior to the fire. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, I want to encourage you to give diligence to your faith. Give diligence to your faith. This is serious. This is serious business. The Lord can come at any moment. Let's be ready. If you're not sure where you stand with the creator of the heavens and the earth, then I want to encourage you to come to the ark that is Jesus Christ himself. I want you to come. I want you to respond to the invitation. Come to Jesus. Come to Him who is able to give you rest. Who is able to give you peace. Who is able to give you safety for what is yet to come. Don't make that long night's journey or that long day's journey into night. Let the Lord bring you the light of His glorious presence. 
Let the Lord bring you there. Surrender yourself to God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Draw near to Him and He'll draw near to you. Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 12 through 17, he says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen, we are to be children of light, not of darkness. Verse 13, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes we are not sure if we're with God and with Christ because we are so concerned whether we have been saved, whether we have been forgiven. But if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that He's risen from the dead, the Bible says you shall be saved. But a change has to occur in your heart. God will execute that change in you when you die to yourself and you live in Christ. But the fact of the matter is, we need to realize we have redemption through the blood of Christ. Has He shed His blood already? Yes or no? Of course he has. Did he do it once and for all? Yes. When he did so, did he forgive your sins? He did. You can be sure of your salvation. Of him it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Come to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a tremendous claim. But it's true. There's no one else but Jesus. No one else and no thing else. No church. No denomination. Savior, only Jesus. Let me read verses 10 through 12 of Genesis. And just close here. We'll pick up at this point next time. It says, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were of the earth, and the sixth of Noah's life, and the sixteenth day of the month. That's pretty specific, isn't it? When it happened. We'll talk about that next time. The were all the mountains deep broke, and the very deep broke was of help. The rain was upon the earth forty days. This was a long night of the light of day. The world was in utter darkness due to sin, but the Lord made a way to come to him, as he always does. And he's that way still through his only begotten Son. My last invitation for you today to come to Jesus as you are, and you will never be away again. In 2 Corinthians 5 17, there any man be in Christ. Notice, in Christ is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. You won't be the same. Shall we pray?